everybody, and welcome to the Wasatch Report. This is going to be episode number 50. I'm Suzanne Sherman. Joining Jeff Johnson and me today is author and historian Dave Benner. Returning to the show, we're going to be talking about one of the more notorious decisions handed down from the Supreme Court in 1942, the case of Wickard versus Filburn. We'll be discussing that and some originalism and the Commerce Clause implications of that. Of that. Before we get rolling, though, you can listen to us live stream on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Suzanne Sherman's The Wasatch Report Radio. We're also going to do a companion show follow-up to this one on my preparedness page, The Red Hot Chili, C-H-I-L-L-Y, The Red Hot Chili Prepper. And you're going to see as we go into this how this impacts the need to be prepared. This is about food sovereignty, self-reliance, and what the government can do to interrupt our food supply chain. We've seen a lot of it going on this last year. Um, you can also, if you're not listening to us live right now on Facebook, you can hear us on Anchor FM. If you are listening live, give us a listen over there. That's how we get paid when you listen to the Anchor ad. You can also support the page for as little as 99 cents a month, but really you could also do 4.99. If everybody did that, that would really help us out a lot. SuzanneCSherman.com, you can find all my published articles there as well as my blogs that were written directly for that page. And if you want to also help us out, I have some Amazon affiliate links on the page, suggested reading, SuzanneCSherman.com. Speaking of suggested reading, the Lost Frontier Handbook is finally out in the printed version. It will be made available very, very soon. The printed copies have been done. I cannot wait to get them. The biggest complaint is who wants to have an ebook? after the poop hits the um, air spreader because then it won't be usable. So now the printed copies are out there. If you already did order your e-version of the book, all you do is pay for shipping and they will get that right out to you. Speaking of suggested reading, my guest here, Dave Benner, has two fantastic books uh, on the foundation of this continental landmass, United States of America, not the United States of America. And if you understand, if you read his book, you will understand why incorporation is a bad idea, the 14th Amendment, and that we are not one United States. Dave, give a quick uh, rundown on those two books and how people can get them. You can also get them on my website. Sure, Suzanne, and thanks for having me. Thanks for being here too, Jeff. So to acquire my book, you can do so at www.compactotherepublic.com. So my book is essentially a uh, history of the constitutional system we have and what makes it distinct. And Essentially, it comes down to federalism and the decentralized na nature of it, right? So unlike countries like England and France, which have a mostly uh, unified system, we rely on localized polities to retain most political power. So my book goes through why that's the case, why it's beneficial, and how that the federal government has eroded that outlook over time. If you read the 14th Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine, that's about 42 pages, something like that. You can knock that out hour and a half if you're taking notes. You will know more about federalism than any federal sitting judge right now. I can promise you that. Because what's what's going on? This conversation you're going to hear today is nothing like what you're going to hear on the corporate media. When the corporate media gets together and discusses things like COVID relief bills, infrastructure, immigration, everything comes from a, a top down solution, everything from Washington, D.C., whether or not said solution has ever been an enumerated power. 
Uh, immigration is one that really gets people's goat on that. And that's where it really comes down to the two Americas, the Lincolnian, Hamiltonian version of America, which is not what was intended. We're going to show you that as the show goes through. And the Jefferson, the Jeffersonian America, and that takes us back to originalism under, under the Constitution. We're going to take a quick break for our friends at Anchor, since this is going to be a very short show, and then get right into it. We'll be right back. All right, everybody. Joining us today, again, author, historian Dave Benner. We're going to be talking about federalism and the Commerce Clause and the most notorious case handed down from the Black Robe Messiahs, in our opinion, Wickard versus Filburn. Dave, let's get started on this. You know, my question here, we hear all the time that the Constitution is this document that's intended to limit the general government that we have right now. I'm of the opinion that it's actually uh, serving now to expand the government. And we have to ask ourselves, is that because of it not being enforced or is this because of the Supreme Court failing in its role as one of the three branches of government that's supposed to act as a check or balance? So uh, has it been successful in restraining the government or has it actually turned into a rubber stamp for a more government overreach? Let's talk a little bit about the Commerce Clause. We know that that's in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. What was the original intention of the Commerce Clause? All right. So the Commerce Clause came about in uh, the aftermath of what's called the critical period, the time in which the Articles of Confederation served as the first constitution of the United States. In that system, there was no official power for taxation at all, including taxation that would regulate foreign trade in the same ways that the Navigation Acts had to tax uh, foreign goods under the British Empire. So even under that system, there were unofficial types of taxation, such as the requisition system, whereupon states were given quotas based on state population and supposed to uh, give the proceeds to the general authority under Congress. And there was the First Bank of North America, really the true First Bank of the United States, which inflated the heck out of the currency. So that kind of served as a tax too. Nonetheless, at that point, uh, many people wondered how this government could survive um, without a power of taxation. And one of the ways in which they thought to do so was to tax foreign trade. Um, there were also other precursors to the Commerce Clause, especially state-based trade impediments against each other. So trade uh, states such as Virginia and Maryland, for instance, would enact protective tariffs against each other and charge each other for goods crossing borders. So essentially what it was that amount to foreign trade at the time. So the Commerce Clause had the express purpose, according to some, to create more of a free trade zone whereupon there could no longer be those types of trade impediments among the states and also to give the Congress a power um, over taxation. Now, how this played out in the ratification conventions was kind of interesting. For instance, uh, Theodore Sedgwick and Fisher Ames in the Massachusetts ratification convention purported that this was a mechanism to create something of a free trade zone because there were trade monopolies going on and awarded to individual firms within Massachusetts and within various places that no longer would have been permissible. The last thing I'll say about this before we proceed is uh, William Samuel Johnston's famous or William Johnston's famous dictionary at the time held that the term regulate made meant to make regular. So this was not you know, viewed in the same way that regulation might be viewed today, which essentially comes down to utter destruction in some cases to impede it entirely. This was almost an encouragement power. Well, you know, 
this is exactly why I keep having you on the show. In my notes here, I have a discussion, some questions. Well, what about the use of the terms regulate, make regular, like we see in the Second Amendment as well? Because these are the only two, and there might be more, but the two times that regulate in the, and uh, a version of it pop up in the Constitution. We see this in the Commerce Clause as well as in the Second Amendment. And as we know, the Second Amendment doesn't call for the regulation of firearms. It calls for training, make regular. And that's really a, a parallel to what we're seeing in the Commerce Clause. To, if, if, is that a fair assessment? Totally. And what I'll say to kind of back this is don't even take my word for it. Go to the ratification conventions and look at how this was described. But I will give Randy Barnett some credit on this one. Now, I don't agree with constitutional scholar Randy Barnett on everything, but he has perhaps the best defense of the original intent of the Commerce Clause as a very prominent academic article. And certainly the, you know, the meaning of words transitions throughout time. And that's a pr prominent example, I would say. The term, the negative commerce clause is often brought up by people seeking a deeper understanding. Why don't you illuminate that phrase? The negative commerce clause. So I think that what that might allude to is the same concept as what some constitutional lawyers called the dormant commerce clause. And what mm -hmm. that means is that by the mere existence of the commerce clause, that means that states cannot make their own protective legislation impeding uh, commerce within their state. I don't agree with that. I think that's kind of an extra constitutional theorem that was developed long after ratification. And in fact, if I was to repudiate that, I would repudiating what I think to be the correct cases in McCulloch versus Maryland, because the state of Maryland placed a tax on notes from the Second Bank of the United States. And I don't think that was constitutionally impermissible. So I don't buy into it. Some people think that because of the Commerce Clause that prevents the states from doing those types of things, though. We'll be right back to the discussion right after this about Roxanne, the music provider for the Wasatch Report. <laughs> music for this program has been brought to you by Roxanne, courtesy of Rat Pack Records. Radio Silence is the album and is available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, RatPackRecordsAmerica.com, and RoxanneBand.com. And we actually did a discussion. We called the showcase and point on our old network on McCulloch versus Maryland. You and I did that. I'm going to find that on SoundCloud and we're going to put that up on Anchor because I thought you did an outstanding job as always on that. So I think at this point, it's fair to say we understand what the Commerce Clause was originally intended to do when the Constitution was ratified. And when we, we say ratified, that means consented to by the states when they decided to join this new form of government. Well, Let's see how that held up. We're going to talk today about a case that came down from court in the United States in 1942 called Wickard versus Filburn. And I remember discussing this class like it was yesterday in my con law class. And going through this con law is uh, the appropriate name for constitutional law, because as I explained in my article, uh, the problem with lawyers and the Constitution, what we really learn when it comes to understanding what the Constitution means is we look to case law. And as we're going to see, this case law is often handed down by judges interested in expanding federal 
power, federal government power. So let's talk a little bit about Wickard v. Filburn and how this came about. As we know, during this time, um, it was uh, Roscoe, uh, Roscoe Filburn was a farmer in Ohio who was growing wheat. And I'm going to do a companion show to this where we get more into the details of his life. But I think it's, it's at, for our purposes, we can sum it up by saying he had he was growing extra wheat and the extra wheat he was using on his own property to feed his cattle and his family. It was not put up for sale. We weren't talking about any kind of interstate commerce, because as we were saying, earlier on when we're talking about the original intentions of the Commerce Clause, it was never intended to regulate everything that crossed from one state line to another. But as we're going to see, that's how it developed. So we're talking here about the Agricultural Adjustment Act. I believe that was ruled unconstitutional by 1836. The act was a scheme to drive up prices by limiting the supply. Is that a fair assessment or do we need to get any more into that for now? It was. I would just even proceed that by just saying for the first 150 years of American history, essentially, this clause was narrowly interpreted. And by that, I mean, there was no consideration that Congress essentially had the ability to regulate the internal commerce of within a state. Um, there was a case, Gibbons versus Ogden, that was interpreted to mean that the case also applied to navigation on waterways. Um, but up to that point, and up to the, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the first one, which you alluded to, there was not such an expansive reading of it. But yes, like you said, um, some of the first round of New Deal legislation, among it being the first uh, Agriculture Adjustment Act, was essentially struck down for being unconstitutional and for perverting the Commerce Clause. Now, some of the listeners may know about this, but there was a event where the sitting president, Franklin Roosevelt, then threatened to what he called pack the court with more Supreme Court justices such that they would be more amenable to accepting the New Deal legislation that he proposed. And in the end, Owen Roberts um, switched some of his dispositions on constitutional theory and that that plan got abandoned. But in, in effect, it was preserved in the way that Roosevelt wanted by kind of turning his disposition, which altered the course of the court. And by the time the case that we will discuss, eight of the nine justices were appointed by Franklin Roosevelt. So it was a very Roosevelt-packed court anyways. The switch in time that saved nine, they refer to it as. And that was when the, the court became, uh, they, they abdicated their role as defenders of the Constitution and became a rubber stamp for FDR's New Deal policies. And again, we're looking at even in, 18, in 1936, the Agricultural Adjustment Act was ruled unconstitutional. But thanks to a little bit of intimidation, uh, they seem to have been brought into line. So as we said, in 1942, the case of Wickard versus Filburn comes up to the Supreme Court. And the issue there was really what is the extent of the uh, power of the United States government to regulate prices and supply of goods that do not cross interstate lines. I would submit to you that they have no power to do this even if they do cross interstate lines. Let's address that first. We'll be right back after this message about Anchor FM. Yes, so uh, interestingly enough, uh, the Commerce Clause, again, is sometimes re referred to as the Interstate Commerce Clause, and classically it was so. 
Now it's sometimes purported to be the interstate commerce clause, which again is extra constitutional. Among the enumerated powers is no kind of act to allow any kind of intervention in the case that we'll describe. But Roscoe Filburn, as you described, was a farmer from Ohio and what amounts to be, I think, Dayton, Ohio today, the second Agricultural Adjustment Act that was not struck down. This one was imposed after the switch in time that saved nine would set quotas for farmers. And those quotas were be to limit the acreage that they could use to grow certain crops. And this impacted tobacco, peanuts, figs, hops, and wheat, as it did in this case. And, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm going through my, my list here. When we go through uh, and brief cases for law school, we have this, what they call the issues, rule, applications, and conclusions. And we've gone through the facts here, what the case was about. And at issue here was the extent of the government to regulate commerce, not only, you know, across state lines, but particularly here with Roscoe Filburn, uh, what he's going to do with wheat and how it affects the other produce that's available for the public to purchase. Because as we know at this time, People were already starving. We're in the middle of the Great Depression. And not only is food being rationed, but as we're seeing, and this is how this is stuff is still relevant. If you look at what happened last year in 2020, all this meat, all this milk produce being destroyed when people are suffering and people are starving as a means of limiting to supply. So we have a twofold discussion here. First of all, because of the centralization that we're seeing like this past year now, people could not access food because they couldn't get it out so far. But here's a man trying to have food to, to deal with his own farm, his own family. And this is how the ruling was explained to me when I was in law school, and it doesn't matter what law school you go to. Yeah, I went little by, to a little night law school in California, but you can go to Michigan, Michigan, you can go to University of Chicago or Yale or Harvard, and they all apply this the same way. And what my professor said was just the fact that Roscoe Filburn was growing his own wheat had an effect on interstate commerce. <laughs> If that's not stretch, uh, you know, a, a stretch, I don't know what is. And the thing that really strikes me now, as I look back on this conversation we had in law school, there were no questions about this. It was just said, "This is the way it is." The judges have spoken. If you want to pass con law, you better answer the questions showing that the government power, with with vis-a-vis uh, -vis the commerce clause, is virtually limitless. And there was nobody asking about the Constitution as ratified. And this is the problem. I refer to this as the malfeasance of the legal and education industry. They teach an overreaching view of the government as acceptable that was repudiated outright, rejected in the Philadelphia Convention, and that was the Virginia plan. It sounds more uh, like Virginia plan here than what was actually proposed to the states uh, after the, the convention in Philadelphia. What say you? Yeah, certainly, and you make good, good allusion to some of this. I mean, this was a policy designed to centrally plan the economy. It was an endeavor to prop up farmers with the idea that th these quotas would serve as something of price controls. The, goal, the end point, the end game was essentially to drive up the price of crops, even while, as you said, many people were languishing in poverty and unemployment that came with the Great Depression and all the centralized hullabaloo that Roosevelt engaged in. Now, Roscoe dared to 
grow in excess of the quotas. And he was warned by uh, fe federal law enforcers that he that there was these quotas. And nonetheless, he violated them, as you said, to feed his livestock. And he argued that, hey, this doesn't, his, his legal counsel argued that this doesn't impact commerce among the states whatsoever. Not only is this not even commerce within a, with, it's not even commerce within a state because I'm consuming this on my own property. Now, the, the district federal court actually sided with Filburn. And then this was appealed via writ of Sergio Rari up to the Supreme Court. And there, under the majority opinion of Robert Jackson, it was eventually it was actually conceded that no commerce took place. Jackson admitted this, but nonetheless, like you say, they argued that this action, this action of growing wheat and feeding his own livestock, impacted the national market for wheat. So by virtue of that happening, it doesn't matter if it's commerce or not, even though this is called the Commerce Clause. This can be subject to regulation by the federal government. And if uh, I'll just read one part of the, the opinion, I think that is really telling. So Jackson said this, whether the subject of regulation in question was production, consumption, or marketing, therefore, is not material for the purposes of deciding the question of federal power before us. That is an activity of local character may help in a doubtful case to determine whether Congress intended to reach it. So again, he's conceding that no commerce exists. But here he says, but even if the appellee's activity be local, and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. And this is irrespective of whether such effort is what at some earlier time may have been defined as direct or indirect. Have you noticed he, he makes these two assumptions that by virtue of his growing this wheat that he's going to use on his own, it has an effect on interstate. But he never says how. How does this affect it? He never says it. He says it, he just says it affects it. And therefore, we're going to control this. The problem I have with this case is if this behavior is not subject to federal regulation, where do you draw the line? Where do they draw the line to say, we cannot cover this? In 1996, I believe it was, there was a case, I think it was Lopez. Mm, and, Lopez, yeah. Yeah, and, and here's, they use the Commerce Clause to justify, I think it was a gun-free zones around schools. Mm. And here's the Commerce Clause. By children sitting in a school, knowing that there might be guns within a thousand feet of where they're trying to learn, these children are going to be so, so scared, they're not going to be able to learn. Children who are poorly educated affect interstate commerce. Even the Supreme Court didn't buy that one. <laughs> I mean, but that's how ridiculous this is. I'll give you another example, too. And I'm familiar with this because one of my very good friends had stem cell uh, treatment for a type of cancer that affects the bone marrow. Well, he had his stem cells, everything harvested, and then chemotherapy to destroy all everything remaining of the immune system. This gives you, they harvest enough for two rounds. If you have to come back, if you go out of remission, two rounds you have of your stem cells available. So after one round, what happens to that other round of stem cells? The federal government has said subsequent to him doing this, oh, you know what? We have control now over regulating these stem cells. Even if they're harvested in one area, this was at the Cancer Treatment Center of America in Chicago, Illinois, 
Well, even though that those stem cells never left the facility and they're going to be stored there until they're needed again, the equipment used to get harvest <laughs> these stem cells crossed interstate lines. <laughs> so therefore, we're going to regulate these too. So now what's going to happen? Is, is the federal government going to say, you know what, we found somebody else more worthy than you of these stem cells. They need it. And uh, we're going to use these because we have control. The point of this whole discussion, folks, is if they can if they can expand their government overreach in this regard, there's no stopping them. I mean, I could be subject to a fine because I have too many eggs. If there's and meanwhile they're throwing eggs out and destroying them. So while this guy's being self-sufficient, they're throwing food out. He's fining him for being self-sufficient. If we could focus on these local farms and uh, ignore this government overreach, we wouldn't have had all these pigs and cattle being euthanized. They weren't even being slaughtered for production. They were just euthanizing them and then being put on big piles to rot and burn while people could have really enjoyed that meat. Locals could have trucked some out and butchered them themselves. This is a real problem. Dave, how can people get hold of you one more time and uh, give us a couple more comments and we'll wrap up the show. Yeah, last thing, just think of the ripple effect and implications of this case. Under Wickard versus Filburn, this has served as one of the most treacherous and malignant precedents that have ever existed. It basically extends to meaning that if you grow a flower in your own house for your own amusement, it impacts the, you know, the national florist market. So more or less, this is the restrictive, this is the open-ended way in which the commerce class has been interpreted for 80 years. And I'll just note one case that proves it is the 2006 case, I believe, of Rach versus Gonzalez, where, yes. uh, where a woman, uh, argued that you know the federal government doesn't have the ability to regulate commerce within her own state when her own doctor testified that her life was in danger if she is not allowed to consume marijuana. Now, I don't agree with Clarence Thomas with anything, but his dissent in that was fantastic. He basically said that this would mean that, I think the examples he used were quilting bees, clothing drives, and potluck dinners would be subject to, <laughs> to regulation by Congress. So um, just really, well, thank the listeners for hearing about this and the treachery that is this. To have any semblance of original intent, we have to roll back Preston set by Wickard Reed Filburn. Uh, to get in hold of me, go to www.davebenner.com. Um, I contribute to the Tenth Amendment Center, Mises Institute, several other publications. I really appreciate your time today, Suzanne, and I wish the best for your future podcast. Well, and you're going to be part of them. We're going to cover some other ones, Korematsu, some other stuff that want to get into as well. Dave Benner author, historian, one of our favorite guests to have on here. I want to thank you all for joining us today. This has been the Wasatch Report. Thank you for listening. Bye.